Listeners, we're back. Well, sort of. It's been one year since the finale of our story, and we wanted to give you something special for sticking with us. So, we're bringing you not one, but two special episodes. Each episode consists of several spooky tales, paranormal phenomena, urban legends, and of course, cryptids. Our first episode is brought to you by the Paranormality Podcast Network, of which we are proud members. The Paranormality Podcast Network is home to many sci-fi, horror, cryptids, conspiracy, and spiritualist podcasts. You can follow the podcasters featured in this episode, or find more information about them at paranormalityradio.com. Now, without further ado, we invite you to turn down the lights, light up that jack-o'-lantern, and let's get ready to get spooky. Hi, this is Alexander V. Thompson, creator, writer, and the voice of Trevor Barnes in the scripted sci-fi podcast, Cryptids. For a special Halloween treat, we are pleased to present a selection from Dracula by Bram Stoker. Five May. I must have been asleep, for certainly if I had been fully awake, I must have noticed the approach of such a remarkable place. In the gloom the courtyard looked of considerable size, and as several dark ways led from it under great round arches, it perhaps seemed bigger than it really is. I have not yet been able to see it by daylight. When the Kalesh stopped, the driver jumped down and held out his hand to assist me to alight. Again I could not but notice his prodigious strength. His hand actually seemed like a steel vice that could have crushed mine if he had chosen. Then he took my traps and placed them on the ground beside me as I stood close to a great door, old and studded with large iron nails, and set in a projecting doorway of massive stone. I could see, even in the dim light, that the stone was massively carved, but that the carving had been much worn by time and weather. As I stood, the driver jumped again into his seat and shook the reins. The horses started forward, and trap and all disappeared down one of the dark openings silence where I was, for I did not know what to do. Of bell or knocker there was no sign. Through these frowning walls and dark window openings it was not likely that my voice could penetrate. The time I waited seemed endless and I felt doubts and fears crowding upon me. What sort of place had I come to, and among what kind of people? What sort of grim adventure was it on which I had embarked? Was this a customary incident in the life of a solicitor's clerk sent out to explain the purchase of a London estate to a foreigner? Then pinch myself to see if I were awake. It all seemed like a horrible nightmare to me, and I expected that I should suddenly awake and find myself at home with the dawn struggling in through the windows, as I had now and again felt in the morning after a day of overwork. But my flesh answered the pinching test, and my eyes were not to be deceived. I was indeed awake and among the Carpathians. All I could do now was to be patient and to wait the coming of morning. I heard a heavy step approaching behind the great door 
and saw through the chinks the gleam of a coming light. Then there was the sound of rattling chains and the clanking of massive bolts drawn back. A key was turned with the loud, grating noise of long disuse, and the great door swung back. All old man, clean-shaven save for a long white mustache, and clad in black from head to foot without a single speck of color about him anywhere. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp, in which the flame burned without a chimney or globe of any kind, throwing long, quivering shadows as it flickered in the draft of the open door. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture, saying in excellent English, but with a strange intonation, Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own free will. He made no motion of stepping to meet me, but stood like a statue, as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone. The instant, however, that I had stepped over the threshold, he moved impulsively forward, and holding out his hand, grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead than a living man. Again, he said, Welcome to my house. Enter freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. The strength of the handshake was so much akin to that which I had noticed in the driver, whose face I had not seen, that for a moment I doubted if it were not the same person to whom I was speaking. So to make sure, I said, interrogatively, Count Dracula. He bowed in a courtly way as he replied, I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Harker, to my house. Come in, the night air is chill and you must need to eat and rest. As he was speaking, he put the lamp on a bracket on the wall, and stepping out took my luggage. He had carried it in before I could forestall him. I protested, but he insisted. You are my guest. It is late and my people are not available. Let me see to your comfort myself. He insisted on carrying my traps along the passage, and then up a great winding stair and along another great passage, on whose stone floor our steps rang heavily. At the end of this he threw open a heavy door, and I rejoiced to see within a well-lit room, in which a table was spread for supper, and on whose mighty hearth a great fire of logs, freshly replenished, flamed and flared. The Count halted, putting down my bags, closed the door, and crossing the room opened another door, which led into a small octagonal room lit by a single lamp, and seemingly without a window of any sort. Passing through this he opened another door, and motioned me to enter. It was a welcome sight, for here was a great bedroom, well lighted and warmed with another log fire, also added to but lately, for the top logs were fresh, which sent a hollow roar up the wide chimney. The Count himself left my luggage inside and withdrew, saying, before he closed the door, need after your journey to refresh yourself. I trust you will find all you wish. When you are ready, Come into the other room, where you will find your supper prepared. The light and warmth and the Count's courteous welcome seem to have dissipated all my doubts and fears. Having then reached my normal state, I discovered that I was half-famished with hunger. So, I went into the other room. I found supper already laid out. My host, who stood on one side of the great fireplace, leaning against the stonework, made a graceful wave of his hand to the table and said, I pray you. Be seated and sup how you please. You will, I trust, excuse me that I do not join you, 
but I have dined already, and I do not sup. The Count himself came forward and took off the cover of a dish, and I fell to at once on an excellent roast chicken. This, with some cheese and a salad and a bottle of old toque, which I had two glasses, was my supper. During the time I was eating, the Count asked me many questions as to my journey, and I told him by degrees all that I had experienced. By this time I had finished my supper, and by my host's desire had drawn up a chair by the fire, and begun to smoke a cigar which he offered me, at the same time excusing himself that he did not smoke. I had now an opportunity of observing him, and found him of a very marked physiognomy. A very strong, aquiline, with a high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily around the temples, but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth, so far as I could see it under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. For the rest, his ears were pale, and at the tops extremely pointed. The chin was broad and strong, and the cheeks firm, though thin. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. Hitherto I had noticed the backs of his hands as they lay on his knees in the firelight, and they had seemed rather white and fine, but seeing them now close to me I could not but notice that they were rather coarse, broad, with squat fingers. Strange to say, there were hairs in the center of the palm. The nails were long and fine and cut to a sharp point. As the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder. It may have been that his breath was rank, but a horrible feeling of nausea came over me, which, do what I would, I could not conceal. The Count, evidently noticing it, drew back, and with a grim sort of smile which showed more than he had yet done his protuberant teeth, sat himself down again on his own side of the fireplace. We were both silent for a while, and as I looked towards the window, I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. There seemed a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened, I heard as if from down below in the valley the howling of many wolves. The Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, Listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. Seeing, I suppose, some expression in my face strange to him, he added, Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. Then he rose and said, But you must be tired. Your bedroom is all ready, and tomorrow you shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon, so sleep well and dream well. With a courteous bow, he opened for me himself the door to the octagonal room, and I entered my bedroom. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt. I fear. I think strange things which I dare not confess to my own soul. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. 7 May. It is again early morning, but I have rested and enjoyed the last twenty-four hours. I slept till late in the day, and awoke of my own accord, 
When I had dressed myself, I went into the room where we had supped and found a cold breakfast laid out, with coffee kept hot by the pot being placed on the hearth. There was a card on the table on which was written, To be absent for a while. Do not wait for me. D. I set to and enjoyed a hearty meal. When I had done, I looked for a bell so that I might let the servants know I had finished, but I could not find one. There are certainly odd deficiencies in the house, considering the extraordinary evidences of wealth which are around me. The table service is of gold and so beautifully wrought that it must be of immense value. The curtains and upholstery of the chairs and sofas and the hangings of my bed are of the costliest and most beautiful fabrics, and must have been of fabulous value when they were made, for they are centuries old, though in excellent order. I saw something like them in the Hampton Court, but they were worn and frayed and moth-eaten. But still, in none of the rooms is there a mirror. There is not even a toilet glass on my table, and I had to get the little shaving glass from my bag before I could either shave or brush my hair. I have not yet seen a servant anywhere, or heard a sound near the castle except the howling of wolves. Some time after I had finished my meal, I do not know whether to call it breakfast or dinner, for it was between five and six o'clock when I had it. I looked about for something to read, for I did not like to go about the castle until I had asked the Count's permission. There was absolutely nothing in the room, book, newspaper, or even writing materials. So I opened another door in the room and found a sort of library. The door opposite mine I tried, but found locked. In the library I found, to my great delight, a vast number of English books, whole shelves full of them, and bound volumes of magazines and newspapers. A table in the center was littered with English magazines and newspapers, though none of them were of a very recent date. The books were of the most varied kind, history, geography, politics, political economy, botany, geology, law, all relating to England and English life and customs and manners. There were even such books of reference as the London Directory, the Red and Blue Books, Whitaker's Almanac, the Army and Navy Lists, and it somehow gladdened my heart to see it, the Law List. Whilst I was looking at the books, the door opened and the Count entered. He saluted me in a hearty way and hoped that I had had a good night's rest. Then he went on. I am glad you found your way in here, for I am sure there is much that will interest you. These companions, and he laid his hand on some of the books, have been good friends to me, and for some years past, ever since I had the idea of going to London, have given me many, many hours of pleasure. Through them I have come to know your great England, and to know her is to love her. I long to go through the crowded streets of your mighty London, to be in the midst of the whirl and rush of humanity, to share its life, its change, its death, and all that makes it what it is. 8 May. I began to fear as I wrote in this book that I was getting too diffuse, but now I am glad that I went into detail from the first, for there is something so strange about this place and all in it that I cannot but feel uneasy. I wish I were safe out of it, or that I had never come, it may be that this strange night existence is telling on me, but would that that were all. If there were anyone to talk to, I could bear it, but there is no one. I have only the Count to speak with, and he... 
I fear I am myself the only living soul within the palace. Let me be prosaic so far as facts can be. It will help me to bear up, and imagination must not run riot with me. If it does, I am lost. Let me say at once how I stand, or seem to. I only slept a few hours when I went to bed, and feeling that I could not sleep any more, got up. I had hung my shaving glass by the window and was just beginning to shave. Suddenly I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard the Count's voice say to me, Good morning. I started, for it amazed me that I had not seen him since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. In starting I had cut myself slightly, but did not notice it at the moment. Having answered the Count's salutation, I turned to the glass again to see how I had been mistaken. This time there could be no error, for the man was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder. But there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed, but there was no sign of a man in it except myself. This was startling and coming on the top of so many strange things was beginning to increase that vague feeling of uneasiness which I always have when the Count is near. But at the instant I saw the cut had bled a little, and the blood was trickling over my chin. I laid down the razor, turning as I did so half round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demonic fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe that it was ever there. Take care, he said. Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. Then seizing the shaving glass, he went on. And this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. Away with it! And opening the window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung out the glass, which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. Then he withdrew without a word. It is very annoying, for I do not see how I am to shave unless my watch case or the bottom of the shaving pot, which is fortunately of metal. When I went into the dining room, breakfast was prepared, but I could not find the Count anywhere, so I breakfasted alone. It is strange that, as yet, I have not seen the Count eat or drink. He must be a very peculiar man. After breakfast, I did a little exploring in the castle. I went out on the stairs and found a room looking towards the south. The view was magnificent, and from where I stood, there was every opportunity of seeing it. The castle is on the very edge of a terrific precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. As far as the eye can reach is a sea of green treetops with occasionally a deep rift where there is a chasm. Here and there are silver threads where the rivers wind in deep gorges through the forests. But I am not in heart to describe beauty, for when I had seen the view I explored further. Doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all locked and bolted. In no place save from the windows and the castle walls is there an available exit. The castle is a veritable prison, and I am a prisoner.
Thank you for listening. On behalf of the Cryptids team, have a happy Halloween, and always remember, eyes to the skies. Hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairieland Paranormal Podcast. And we are excited to be part of this Halloween special sponsored by the Paranormality Podcast Network. We are going to share with you one of our favorite spooky tales, a chilling legend from our own state of Illinois, a legend called The Curse of Kaskaskia. Fertile plains along the Mississippi River seemed like a great place for early French settlers to colonize as they moved through the territories of Illinois. Soon, by 1703, a new settlement called Kaskaskia was colonized. For over a century, Kaskaskia thrived and was the cultural and commercial capital of Illinois. The city was established on a small peninsula that jetted out into the mighty Mississippi River. The river brought many to this area, and Kaskaskia grew, becoming the territorial capital in 1809. The residents, nearly half of whom were French or French-American Indian, raised cattle, horses, hogs, and worked the small farms on the fertile grounds. The town quickly became a rendezvous point for many who were traveling even further west and boasted a post office, several general stores, a hat shop, and three tailor shops. The town's single tavern, however, was a hot spot of trouble and was, of course, constantly crowded. In 1818, Illinois was granted statehood and soon the capital was moved to Vandalia. Vandalia was more centrally located than Kaskaskia and the move commenced with some regret, but perhaps with a little bit of providence as the town was doomed and would soon cease to exist by 1881. Today, only a small part of the city still exists as a lonely island, the rest consumed by the river that once allowed it to thrive. The island is completely cut off from the state of Illinois, and the ghost town that remains, consisting of only a few small buildings, is accessible only via a decrepit bridge on Missouri side of the river. So how did a town that was once the state capital and considered the metropolis of the Mississippi Valley end up tattered, torn, and decrepit? Was its destruction by the river simply nature taking its course? Or was it perhaps, as some believe, a curse? A curse that predicted that the city and the land would be destroyed and that the dead would rise from their graves in eternal torment. The legend of the curse dates back to the early 1700s with a wealthy businessman named Jean Bernard. Bernard lived in a large stone home in the company of his daughter, Maria. Maria was beautiful and the pride of his life. Her beauty was said to be famed from Lake Michigan to the Gulf of Mexico. Bernard owned a trading post and merchantile shop and was a prosperous and influential man in the town. One day, a young man, a chief of the Kaskaskia tribe, settled in the town after being educated by the French missionaries and converting to Christianity. He was intelligent, handsome, and well-educated, and Jean Bernard 
instantly took a liking to him, eventually taking him in as a partner in his business. The problems began when Maria also took a liking to him. In fact, the two had fallen in love. They had met at a local ball and had fallen in love at first sight. While Bernard was willing to share his business with the young man, his daughter was not part of that deal. And when Bernard found out, he was enraged and fired the young man. More than that, he blacklisted him and turned every other local merchant against him. Move along. Making it impossible There's for him no work for to you find here. work. Eventually, the young man was forced to leave town. Before he left, he stole one last moment with Maria and promised he would return for her. Maria was angry with her father's actions, and while she pretended nothing was wrong as to not arouse her father's suspicions, she was heartbroken and secretly awaited the return of her lover. A year passed, and Maria's lover returned in disguise. They met secretly and decided together to flee Kaskaskia and elope to the north. If you love me, we must go now. Those that searched for Maria that night discovered that the young Indian had been seen in town that evening, despite his best efforts to remain disguised. Bernard was enraged when he found out that his daughter had left with the Indian. He gathered several men into a posse and began hunting for his daughter and the young man. Sadly, their trail was easily discovered by the evening's snowfall. Legend says that they captured them near Cahokia, where the Indian had set up a home for the couple. When the men surrounded the home, the young Indian surrendered to Bernard and his men without a fight. Maria begged for her father to understand, but her cries went unheard. Bernard only had revenge on his mind and dragged the Indian and his daughter back to Kaskaskia. Bernard decided to rid himself of the Indian in the cruelest of ways. He placed his daughter in a convent and took the young man to the banks of the Mississippi with the intent of tying him to a log and throwing him in. The Indian was silent as the men grabbed him and bound him to a log. But just as they were about to place him in the water, he spoke up, and what he said is said to have cursed Bernard and the town of Kaskaskia forevermore. Speaking directly to Bernard, he said, Soon, Maria and I will be reunited forever, and you will be left alone, dead before the year's end. Kaskaskia is damned. Within 200 years, these very waters will sweep away every vestige of this town. Its lands, its homes, and the altar of its church will all be destroyed. Even the dead will be disturbed, rising from their graves. Nothing will remain in this town other than its name. The young man was then thrown into the muddy Mississippi and swallowed by the river. He was silenced but the curse he left behind extracted its revenge with devout prophetic exactness. Maria, distraught over her lover's fate, refused to leave the convent or eat, and soon died, joining her lover on the other side. Bernard was left alone and within a year was dead himself, shot in 1712 in a duel by a man he accused of cheating him in a business deal. The river then exacted the curse on the town. The channels shifted and flooded the peninsula over and over again. And by 1881, Kaskaskia was completely cut off from the mainland. The inhabitants of the city left slowly over time, abandoning their farms and their homes 
as the river continued to encroach. With one last upheaval in 1973, the mighty Mississippi flooded the town out of existence, leaving the town a desolate ghost town. This same flood destroyed the town's church and its altar. It also caused the caskets in the town's cemetery to erupt from the ground and float down the river. The dead of Kaskaskia had risen from their graves. Whether you believe in curses or not makes no difference. The superstitious will declare that the Indians' curse exacted its revenge on the once flourishing town. And those who don't believe in such nonsense will say it's just the nature of the turbid waters of the Mississippi to destroy. Either way, Kaskaskia was destroyed, and there was not a speck of its soil that has not been affected in some way by either nature or the supernatural. All right, folks, we hope that you have enjoyed our telling of the curse of Kaskaskia. The Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast is a exploration into all things paranormal with dramatic storytelling, historical research, relevant science, and witness accounts. If you are interested in hearing more of our podcast, you can find us online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player. We hope to see you soon. Hi guys, this is Heather and Kristen, the hosts of Sinister Sweethearts Podcast. Follow along as we journey through the 50 states of America, discussing everything weird, creepy, and sinister. New episodes every Tuesday, and you can find us on ParanormalityRadio.com or your favorite podcast player. I'm a 26-year-old male, and I live in Michigan. I'm a normal, average guy. While I keep an open mind, I don't believe in ghosts, aliens, Bigfoot, and I'm not even too sure about God. The way I see it, if I haven't encountered it firsthand or seen it documented, then I keep a healthy amount of skepticism. There is one thing I do believe in now that I never did before. Hell, I didn't even know about it before. Black, freaking-eyed kids. I love to hike and camp. I just love the solitude, peace, and serenity the outdoors provides me. Being alone in the wilderness gave me the opportunity to clear my head, be introspective, and consider the facts of life. Beauty is all around us. In a way, I think it's my belief in beauty that has helped me cope as well as I have with what I'm about to share. In late August of 2010, I set out for Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore Park, located along Lake Michigan. I had scheduled five days off of work, and I planned on making the most of it. Sleeping Bear is one of my favorite parks in lower Michigan. I know it to be a great place for some solitude, so I wasn't surprised when I arrived the first day, found my usual parking spot, and didn't see another person. The proper procedure for camping at a state or national park is to check in at a ranger station. There you pay your fees, obtain your backcountry pass, and give the rangers your information, license plate number, make and model of your car, etc. I headed to the nearby ranger station, a 15 or so minute drive, to get my affairs in order. I park in the station's parking lot and walk into the office. The ranger and I spoke for a little, and he asked me for my license plate number. I knew he was going to ask, but I still forgot to write it down before I went in. So I walk back out toward my car and I see two kids sitting at a bench just in front of where I'm parked. They weren't there when I parked, and I didn't notice them when I walked into the station. But at this point in time, I'm still on cloud nine. I'm happy to be on vacation, so I take no real notice. I walk to the back of my car, jot down the license plate number, and walk back to the office. I take care of business in the office and walk to the connecting bathroom. I enter an empty stall, and as I'm taking care of my business, I hear the bathroom door open, followed by whispered voices. 
It's a small bathroom, but I can't make out what the voices are saying. I can tell they're kids' voices, though, and I figure it's the kids I saw near my car earlier. No biggie, right? I finish up and open the stall door. Sure enough, there are the two kids standing outside the stall. I remember saying, it's all yours, as I walk to the sink. The kids just stood there. When you think about it now, the situation seems a little spooky, but at the time, and if you were in the situation yourself, I'd bet that you wouldn't be the slightest bit worried, and neither was I. I wash my hands and glance in the mirror, only to notice the kids are looking right at me. This is the first time, but certainly not the last time on this trip, that my spine tingles with fear. The damn kids have completely black eyes, no whites to their eyes at all. At first, I can't do or say anything. I'm literally frozen with fear. The water runs over my hands, but I can't feel it. I was petrified. It was only when one of the kids, a brown-haired boy that I would guess was around 12, took a step toward me that my fight-or-flight instincts took over. I moved a step back from the kids and toward the door. The boy didn't take another step toward me. Can you help us? That's what the boy said when one of us finally spoke. For a moment, I did want to help. I considered myself to be a pretty nice guy, and for a while, I thought this is why I wanted to help those creepy kids. I thought my sheer decency, despite my better judgment, made me want to help them. Only since I began researching the BEKs do I realize that I didn't want to help those kids, but whatever magical, mystical voodoo power they have made me want to help them. I can't tell you with any certainty how long I stood motionless thinking about helping those kids, but it seemed like an eternity. Finally, like a physical shaking of my brain, I said, no, not right now. I gotta go. And then I left the bathroom. I remember in that two seconds my back was turned, I felt certain I was going to die. I thought as soon as my back was turned, they were going to tear me to shreds. It was with knee-buckling relief that I left the bathroom and walked out into the midday sun. I walked on noodle-like legs, too afraid to look behind me. I fumbled for my keys, got in my car, and locked it. Only then, in the safety of my locked car, did I feel safe enough to look back toward the bathroom. Damned if the little freaks weren't standing just outside the bathroom staring at me with the big, black, soul-sucking eyes. In my hiking, I've encountered odd people before. I've turned a bend in a trail only to startle a huge grizzly bear. I've been lost and ran out of water once, and I even had a tree fall in the middle of my campsite during a gale-swept night in Tennessee. However, not a single event in my life scared me nearly as much as those kids. So there I am in my car staring at those kids and them staring at me. I can't take my stare away from them, and they start for my car. Startled to my senses, I turn the key, throw it in reverse, and get the hell out of there. I drive off, not daring to look in the rearview mirror. I know that if I do look back, I'll see those black eyes looking back at me. I turn onto the main road and head the short drive north to my campsite. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Why the hell are you still camping? To be honest, I can't tell you why. It wasn't until I parked in the sand lot at the head of the White Pine Trail that my brain started functioning again. The drive home would only take three hours. I could make it home in time for dinner. But for some reason, I talked myself out of it. Sitting in my car in the sun on the beach has a way of taking away all bad feelings. I know that the sun will start to set in around three or four hours, so I know I should head toward my camping spot. Now, there are two ways to access the White Pine Campground from where I was parked. I could either head through the woods, or I could walk along the beach. The wooded trail is quicker and shorter, and the beach trail is harder on the legs and lungs. However, considering what I had just went through, I decided to go along the beach. It was the more open, brighter, kinder trail. Reaching my campsite, I find it, unfortunately, completely empty. 
The campground was seven sites, I think, and not one of them was taken. Usually this would be a happy thing to me, but this time I wished for all my might for a little company. I pick a site hidden fairly well from the trail, feeling that I didn't need anyone walking along to spot my tent. I unpack and set up my one-person tent. Taking my walking stick, a sawed-off hockey stick, and a folding knife with me, I head into the forest to gather firewood. I pile up a good-sized pile and proceed to light a fire. I cook my food and eat, all the while watching the sunset through the trees. What is normally a beautiful, warming sight to me now only brings dread. I do not want to be out here, I suddenly realized. I finish eating quickly and decide to gather even more firewood. I did not want to run out in the middle of the night. I wanted the night to fly by and give me the security of morning. I finished my whiskey and wished that I had brought the bottle with me from the car. The spirits had done their job, though, and I was a bit calmer. I was feeling sleepy, though the rules say, don't go to bed with your fire burning. I sure as hell was not going to sleep without the fire. I got in my tent, leaving the flap open, with just the bug flap closed, so I could see the fire and tried to sleep. I don't know how long I lay there before sleep found me, but I did eventually drift off. I woke to a dead fire and the early dusk light coming in. As dawn turned into day, I felt more and more foolish for the fear I felt yesterday. I couldn't explain the intense dread and fear I felt when I saw those kids, but I did my best to ignore it, and I explained away their eyes pretty easily. I told myself the kids were campers, had some colored contact lenses, and were playing a joke. Simple. Possible, even probably, considering the alternative. I ate breakfast and then made a horrible decision. I decided to stay another night. After breakfast, I gathered firewood so that I wouldn't have to gather any when I got back for the evening. I hiked back to my car along the wooded trail and decided to go to the dune climb. The dune climb is a trail that begins at a towering dune and ends one and a half miles away at Lake Michigan. I got back to my car from the round-trip hike right around one o'clock, and then I spent the rest of the day enjoying the surrounding area. I went to this steakhouse just outside of Traverse City around 4.30, figuring a quick dinner would get me to my camp at just about dusk. But that's not what happened. The restaurant was packed. In the end, I didn't get out of the restaurant until dusk. By the time I was at the lot and parked, it was full-blown nighttime. Sitting in the parking lot, listening to the wind and the rain, I was pretty damn scared again. I think that if nearly all my gear wasn't still at the campsite, then I would have just drove home and said screw it. However, I couldn't abandon several hundred dollars worth of camping equipment because I was scared. I gear up and took the beach path. Hiking in the dark is not smart in the best of circumstances. The real danger is getting lost or stumbling over something and injuring yourself. However, what had me worried was a creeping sensation of paranoia. As I walked, the sensation of paranoia and dread grew. I stopped every ten feet or so to look around. I listened, but I saw nothing and heard nothing. I'd walk another ten feet and just knew that someone was watching me. It was hard to hear anything over the lapping waves of the lake and the howling wind of the storm, but I swear I heard voices in the tall grass. I had been walking probably half an hour, and I knew I would reach the trail leading to my campsite any second. But then my world fell apart. Having one of my strongest moments of feeling watched, I turned around, and there they were. The boy who spoke to me earlier couldn't have been more than five feet away, and the other boy, the quiet boy, was standing slightly behind him. Each of the boys stood motionless, staring, just staring. At this moment, I'm not sure I have the ability to put my terror into words. The best way I can describe it is to say I felt like I was dying. I felt like I was in the hospital, and the doctor just told me I had moments to live. The talkative boy moved toward me. The only light on the beach came from my headlamp. 
My beam flashed across their faces, reflecting grotesquely in their large, dark eyes. Help us. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. I could barely breathe. The boy moved closer. The quiet boy stepped to the side, almost like he was slowly circling behind me. And that broke the spell. I'm not freaking helping you, I said. We're lost. We can't find our campsite. Is this a game? I asked, even though I knew it wasn't. Take us with you, please. We'll die out here. We're afraid. I call bull crap on that one. They're scared, I thought to myself. I'm scared. You're the one with the creepy eyes, the vacant, hollow voices. You're the ones with the fisheye stare. The quiet boy moved a little more. He was now standing beside me, just a couple feet away. The talkative boy was still in front of me, blocking the way I had come, blocking the path back to my car. Then things got even weirder. Okay, you can come with me, I said. I don't even remember thinking the words. They just came out. The talkative boy smiled, and he reached to take my hand. The fight-or-flight response hit me so hard it was like a physical punch to the stomach. I recoiled at the sight of this little monster trying to take my hand. Before I even realize it, I'm running down the beach. I'm sprinting away as fast as I can. I don't look behind me. I don't know if they're following me or not, and I don't want to know. All I know is that I need to run faster. I see the trail leading from the beach into the woods. My senses finally returning to me, I jump off the trail and move a little ways into the woods. I turn off my headlamp and I lie down among some tall grass. I watch the trail waiting to see the kids following. I waited, in the rain, for a couple hours at least. No kids. The cold was slowly creeping in. I had to leave my concealment and make way to shelter. I had two options, the tent and sleeping bag, or the car. It was an impossible decision. It was a choice of the lesser of two evils. I chose the tent. I crossed my fingers and prayed that the little creeps didn't know where my tent was. I got up, found the trail, and sprinted the half mile to the campground. When I arrived at the campground, I made a wide circle of it, looking both for other campers and for the little devils. I saw nothing and no one. I made my way to my tent and crawled in. I thought briefly about a fire, but decided that would be more of a signal to the kids than deterrence. My clothes were sopping wet, and I was still very cold. I had to take them off. My pack is leaning against a tree about 15 feet from my tent. Inside are clean, dry clothes, sealed tightly in a wet bag. However, now that I'm inside the tent, I'm sure as hell not going back out. The rain plays against the leaves of the trees, and the wind creaks the branches. My imagination made every creak, every howl of the wind into something sinister. I wanted so badly just to fall asleep. I thought it was a nightmare at first when I heard the voice say, Something. I thought I was dreaming, but then sleep cleared from my head and I realized I was awake. It was still night and the storm was still biting. Help us, an unmistakable voice said. I couldn't help it. It was a gut reaction. I screamed. I lay naked. My mummy bag zipped up to my chin. I was completely helpless. Please, let us in. No, I screeched. It's so cold. Please let us in, mister. I stopped replying and could only sob. I was so uncontrollably scared. Let us in. I tugged the pole string on the hood of my mummy bag until I was completely enveloped. I just kept repeating, no, no, no. I waited for death. I knew it was coming. Any second, and I'd be ripped to shreds. The kid kept saying something, but I wasn't listening. I wouldn't listen. I knew how overwhelming their hypnotic power was. I did everything I could not to listen. I kept chanting my mantra, kept howling my nose. I don't know when I fell asleep, but the next thing I know I startle awake. 
The sun is shining and I'm alive. It takes me several minutes to gather the courage necessary to unzip the tent fly, but finally I do. I peek my head out and see no one. I pack my belongings and take off down the trail. I thankfully haven't seen any more black-eyed kids. I don't want to ponder what they are. I don't want to think about whether they are demons or monsters or aliens. I was interested at first. I did some research because I wanted to know if I was crazy. I just wanted to know that I wasn't the only one who has had this experience. I'm not, and I'm thankful for that. My advice, if you ever do encounter a BEK, don't listen to it speak. Don't be polite in case they're just weird kids. Don't question their validity. Don't worry about looking silly or that others will think you're crazy. Just run. Run and don't look back. Hello, I'm Lindsay. Hi, I'm Rebecca. And you're listening to I Have a Strange Story podcast. This is the podcast where two sisters retell your strange and paranormal stories and experiences. Thank you for joining us today for this special Halloween episode. Today, I bring you a story of fiction. This is Why Did You Have to See Me by Christina Martin. You just had to notice me. It had to be me? I don't know what brought me to your attention. I don't stand out from the crowd or wear flashy clothes that scream, pay attention to me. I want to be seen. I'm quite basic, as people my age would say. I like to blend in with the environment since I don't like much contact, especially with strangers. But you, you had to see me. I don't know how long you were following me before I noticed you, but when I finally paid enough attention, I saw you everywhere. I couldn't step outside my apartment without seeing you across the street with your camera, snapping photos of me, or when I would turn down an aisle at the grocery store, you were there, staring at me as I was looking at my cereal. At first I thought it was all a coincidence. Honestly, I thought, who the fuck would follow me? I'm nothing special. I spend most of my time in my apartment or sometimes visiting friends. I thought for a while, maybe you had a crush on me and was too embarrassed to say it, but when you started taking the photos, that's when I thought this was something more. So when I confronted you, you ran. I didn't see you for a week and was a bit conflicted with my feelings. I felt somewhat abandoned, but then at times content to have my privacy back. I bet you wish you'd never seen me now. You thought you could stalk me, that I was just a helpless, lonely girl. Oh boy, how wrong were you? As I'm typing this, I can hear your screams echoing off my walls. No one will hear you, I promise. You're in my world now. No one probably even cares you're gone. I checked. You have no family to speak of, as you disowned them when you were a teenager. You have a girlfriend that was on the brink of breaking up with you because she thought you were going crazy with your constant chatter about me being some psycho with all the photos you took of me, just being an ordinary woman, going about her boring life. You developed my pictures from the dark room in your two-bedroom apartment and spread the photos all over the living room floor, screaming and begging for her to see what you saw. But she never did see, did she? Needless to say, I've done my research on you, friend. The thing is, I've spent so much time being unnoticed that I've gotten away with so much. The missing person posters riddled on the telephone poles or college cork boards. 
I'd have to say most of those are my victims. But you? I don't think your face will be in a milk carton or any newspaper. I cover my tracks. I've already gone to the police and filed a complaint about you stalking me. I went there, crying, mascara bleeding down my cheeks, terror in my eyes with my close friend embracing me as I shivered in her arms. You remember the police officer banging on your door to serve you the restraining order, right? Remember when he saw all the photos? Yeah, I know you tried to show what little evidence you had on me, saying I was a serial killer, but you really just looked like an unstable failed photographer to him. Now that I think of it, I remember when I first saw you see me. I had just lit the throat of some asshole that tried to attack me when I was walking home from a friend's house. I had just finished carving his neck and let go a hold of his hair. When he dropped to the ground, the only sound was him gurgling his last breath of air. You ran, but I thought you didn't get a good look at me since it was so dark that night. I honestly wouldn't have gone for you since you're not my typical victim, but Emma's change. I'm adapting. Don't worry, though. You won't die as quickly as most of my victims. I want you to understand how being in the wrong place at the wrong time can become your worst nightmare. Noticing the unnoticeable has consequences. If you'd like to hear more stories from Christina Martin, visit her Patreon page at Sunday morning. Now I have a story to read. Uh, This is from a listener who sent it in. And this is a true story. And it's pretty creepy. I'll tell you that much. So this is from whenever he's younger. He's like in his 20s, he thinks. And he came out from a night of drinking. And it's about 2 a.m. So he pulled up. And he sees that his neighbors are having a party next door. And it looked like it was kind of winding down. Like there weren't a lot of people there. Um, But there were three girls there. Um, I think two of them lived there. And one of them was like a friend who was there. And like she like just looked like really messed up. Like she'd been drinking all night. She had no energy. Um, And they basically were like, hey, can you help us with this girl? They were like, she's, you know, we needed to carry her to the bedroom. Like, can you help us? And he was like, sure. So he went over there. He picked up the girl and he took her into the bedroom. Um, And then he just sat on the floor next to her. Uh, He was scared that she was going to throw up and that she might choke. So eventually the two girls left out of the room and they went into the living room. Um, and he says that all of a sudden, whenever they left, they felt, he felt all of this energy like in the house and the girl who was laying in the bed started talking about the devil and she looked disturbed and she looked angry and she looked concerned and he couldn't really understand what was going on. He didn't even know this girl, like he just showed up to help and those other people had just left. Um, so then she kept staring down the hallway And as she was staring down the hallway, she was saying, he's down there. And she just kept repeating it over and over. And at first, he thought it was just a joke. He thought they were just doing all this to scare him, like it was some elaborate prank. Um, So then she escalated to screaming. Um, And she was screaming, he's down there, he's down there. By this time, two other guys show up. And they're all friends. Um, And then he says that this is the point where he thinks that she started to act possessed. 
she was angry. She was slamming things. She was yelling. And he said that they couldn't even make sense of what she was yelling um, or what was going on or what she was upset about. So he was previously religious. At this time, he's not religious any longer. But at the time, he really was. And he was like, holy shit, this is the scariest thing he's ever encountered in his life. Um, Okay, so he noticed what he thought uh, was a need for help, basically. He thought that this was his calling to really help her. Um, so she started like thrashing and throwing her body around the living room at this point. And everybody, uh, got really scared. He grabbed her by her shoulders and he, he put her up against the wall to keep her from thrashing her body around. Um, and he looked at her and at this point, those other people who were there, her friends, they all ran and they left and they left her alone in the living room with her. And he looked at her and he said, we have to pray for you. And he just started praying. Um, he doesn't remember what he prayed. Like he doesn't know if it was a specific prayer or if it was specifically to help this person. Um, and she looked at him and he asked her if she believed in God and she just started laughing and didn't um, really provide the response. He said it was a very maniacal laugh that was absolutely terrifying, and he wanted to leave the room immediately. So he just started praying out loud over her, um, and he was asking somebody, he was just saying, leave her alone, leave her alone, and then praying. Um, She started yelling at her, and she just started yelling the F word at you, like F you, F you. Um, So he went outside, and he sees that there's crosses, not outside, in the living room. He sees that there's crosses all over the living room. Um, And he said that he thought that these were idols at the time. And I had to ask him what that meant. (laughs) He basically meant it's... um, worshiping an object over Jesus, over a person. And so some, some religions view religious stuff like that as, um, idols. And so he kind of saw it as a bad thing because you're supposed to worship Jesus over the cross. So what he did is he was like, I have to get her out of the living room. So we picked her up and he put her on the front porch. He looked at the girl who was his neighbor and he said, go get my brother. And so she ran next door. She went and got him. He came running back and he said, he and his brother came and they just looked at each other and he said they knew exactly what they had to do. And his brother came over to him and then she started laughing in a very evil, very scary laugh. And then all of a sudden they heard dogs howling throughout the entire neighborhood, including his dog. And they also lived out in the country. So the houses were kind of like far apart. All the dogs started howling and he and his brother just started praying out loud over her. Um, and he doesn't know how long it seems like it was forever, but eventually she just stopped and she just laid there. Um, he's not sure what happened. Um, in this moment, he went back home and his stepdad was there and his stepdad was very involved at the church that they went to. And he asked him like what it was. And his stepdad went on to tell him that he was very lucky to have this occurrence because he said that they didn't do anything to protect themselves and that with them praying over this person's body, if there was something that had possessed her when it left, it may have entered one of them. And so he was saying that they were actually very lucky that they had this experience, which is probably one of the scariest experiences. Um, his thoughts on it now is he thought that it could have been drugs. It could have been alcohol. It could have been intention sinking. Um, he's not sure he never saw her again after that. And in fact, what he understands is that she allegedly went missing 
after this incident and they, they never heard from her or saw from her and they never talked to the neighbors again. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Happy Halloween. Thank you for listening. You can find us everywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello, everyone, and happy Halloween. This is Brandon from the Para-Unity Podcast. Tonight, I wanted to read you a story that takes alien abduction behind the wheel of an 18-wheeler. The story was written by Reddit user Author Jojo, and it's called Aliens Don't Fly Spaceships. They Drive Semi-Trucks. I remember sitting in my car for the longest time, staring at the lights flashing on the dashboard, just hoping that they would flicker off. Anything to keep me from having to accept that I was essentially stranded, surrounded by nothing but flat brown land and ever-oppressive darkness. I wish I could have been at least angry at myself. I wish before heading off I had ignored the noise the car had made or chose not to care about the way the engine sputtered. That wasn't the case, though. When I left for my trip, the car was in tip-top shape and showed no signs of breaking down. Then all of a sudden, with my headlights painting the dark road before me, the car just died. So I sat with the battery's purpose reduced to keeping me vaguely illuminated, hoping that someone would spot me, but I figured I looked like nothing more than a speck of dust in the distance, similar to the stars hanging above me. My only saving grace was that the heater continued to pump warm air into the car, fending off the cold of the desert around me. Running through my options, I looked at my surroundings once more. No other specks of dust to indicate another living soul could be seen. Do I wait until morning? Or do I try to walk? I'd been driving for a while, and my destination could be seen on the horizon. Still, it would have been a hell of a walk in the cold. And in the morning, though, it would be far too hot, and I didn't have nearly enough water to keep me hydrated. I didn't know if the road was more commonly occupied during the night or the day. It was the kind of drive I would assume people would take at night. It was a truly a lovely one. Light pollution hadn't reached the sky, so the stars were ever visible, and it was almost surreal. What wildlife would I have to look out for? The drive should have been fairly quick and uneventful one, so I didn't worry about anything like that on departure. It was there, deep diving into my thoughts, that I began to feel my body vibrate. A small, shaking that rattled up my spine, jarring me back to the lights on the dashboard. This time, though, the interior of my car was bright, far brighter than my overhead light could accomplish. Turning towards the source of the light, I was immediately blinded by the intense white of two orbs sitting just behind my car, hovering above the ground. For a brief moment, I pictured myself standing far off in the desert, Looking towards the sky, I imagined the intense light lifting me off the ground and pulling me into some spacecraft. As my rational brain pulled me away from such fantasy, I came to recognize through the blinding light the rumble was coming from a truck. I dropped the hand shielding my eye in relief and fumbled for the door handle. I don't know how I didn't notice something so large and bright coming up from behind me, I figured I was so lost in my thoughts just trying to avoid panicking. Pushing open the door, I stepped out into the cold, feeling half of my body still being heated from the front of the truck. I walked around to the side of it, 
remnants of the intense light still blocking bits of my vision. So much so that I was hardly able to make out the face of the man driving the truck, but it didn't matter. I was still happy to see him. I explained to him what had happened, how my car decided on its own accord that it wanted to rest by the side of the road for a while, and with a voice that made me feel like a small child asking for something expensive for my birthday, I asked if he could just give me a ride to town, and I didn't feel like walking was going to pan out well for me. Hop in, he replied. His voice sounded like he was shivering as the cold had wrapped around his windpipes. I offered far too many thanks and retrieved my stuff from the car. Shutting off the headlights that painted the road vanished. The much more overpowering light of the truck had all but eaten them up. Jogging to the passenger seat, I reached up and pulled the large door open. It swung with a heft I wasn't expecting and nearly threw me back. Using the metal steps, I climbed up into the cabin and rested back on the seat. I said thank you again and offered my name up. Waiting a moment in silence, though, he turned to me, features still hidden in the dark, though thinking back with the headlights, I should have been able to make something out. I noticed he wasn't looking at me, but the door that I hadn't yet closed. Sheepishly, I apologized and swung the door shut. It slammed, wafting the bang through the cabin, and after shutting, offered a bizarre click like the winding of gears. It was odd, but I figured truck doors need to have a sturdier mechanism to keep them closed. I heard the driver shift, and the vibration of the truck intensified. It lurched forward soon, and we left my car behind. I was so happy to be moving again, I almost didn't realize how cold it was in the cabin. The rattling from the vibration seemed to echo the chill running across my bare skin. I didn't want to be rude and ask for the driver to turn the heat on. I just didn't understand how he wasn't cold, though. He was just wearing a long sleeve shirt and jeans. Nothing special. Looking over at him, trying to get a read on his face, I noticed just how clean this cabin was. Looked like it had just been bought. Nothing like you've seen in the shows where wrappers are littered everywhere and clothes are draped all over the seats. Swallowing my pride... I began to speak again, lips quivering. I started to ask if he could turn the heat on, but my words came out soft. It was hard to get the air out to form the words pressing out of my head. The smell. The heat wasn't on, but the air was still coming from the vents. I'm not sure if it was like that when I first got in, or if it started when we started moving, but the smell was different. I was trying to put my finger on it, and... Then my vision started to go hazy. When we stopped moving, how long we were moving for, who was I sitting next to? I turned my head to get a look at him while I felt my body going limp. His face was illuminated now, but my vision was clouded. His features seemed to stretch and pull away from under my impaired gaze, and then I blacked out. I came too slowly, my senses returning to me after the other. First was smell. Taking in a gasping bloom of air, I noticed the strange smell from before was gone. It was replaced by the smell of a rusting iron and batteries. Then I could hear a small clattering of objects around me, like things and metal tubes falling over each other. It wasn't long before I could feel again. Thick restraints around my wrist and ankles, apparent to me at first. 
though I wasn't immediately aware of their purpose, as I wasn't able to move my body anyways. Soon after, I could feel similar restraints on my forehead and chest. My eyes were struggling to open, and I couldn't move my body and had to fight to try and flutter my eyelids. Small slivers of the scene around me. While the noises continued, I fought, and I fought to open my eyes. When I finally managed to open them wide enough to see what kind of situation I was in, I discovered the reasons for my restraints. The grogginess of me waking up must have hidden the feeling at first, but as I looked around as much as motionless neck would allow, I understood the underlying vertigo. I thought I'd find myself lying on a table, but instead, I was constrained to the ceiling. Looking down, I saw a table filled with various instruments. It didn't take much deductive reasoning to put it together that I was on the back of that truck, the large metal container hauled by the same man who had picked me up. Then the door opened. Another light flooded into the container as two figures stepped into it. The driver I instantly recognized, but now there were two of them. The same shirt, pants, and body build. They spoke to each other and it sounded like a whisper, but as I listened carefully it was more like an expulsion of air. Within the soft rushing of breath were faint clicks, the innocuous cling that a safecracker would listen for. One of them looked up at me, recognizing that my eyes were open. It expelled more air, alerting the other who almost looked up at me. Their eyes were devoid of pupils or sclera, and instead their eyes consisted of entirely of a faded violet. The color became more vibrant as it reached the center of the eye and duller near the edges. One of them made a motion to the light that was being cast into the truck. The light then shifted to a color similar to their eyes, making the interior of the truck saturated with a muddy purple. The color felt oppressive. It weighed heavy on my chest, and it was accompanied by a low mechanical hum that shook against my back. I didn't feel it at first. The instrument that they had invaded my stomach. It was a pinprick of pain that grew into a gnawing heat as the instrument, guided by one of the men, dragged from my stomach up the restraints on my chest. Despite the pain, I wasn't able to scream or shake, fighting the sensation in any way. I just had to suffer it, which I think made it worse, and I had no outlet but the pain. Looking over, I could see that the light had caused the rusted sides of the truck to shift into something with reflective properties. It was a warped image, but I could see myself hanging on the ceiling as a driver sliced me open. It was more like an out-of-body experience thought, like my mind was trying everything it could to separate me from the pain. I'm not sure how much the efforts worked, though. I could feel every aching inch of my skin being divided. Then I felt it. Something like experiencing zero-g on a roller coaster. When the knife reached the restraints, the driver parted my skin with another tool and my stomach dropped. My insides fell away from me. I watched an exhaustive horror as the parts of me, like I've only ever seen in movies or medical textbooks, rushed out like water. Shutting my eyes, I waited for the sound of my wet organ slapping on the bottom of the metal box, and I was surprised when I heard nothing. Opening my eyes again slowly, I could see in the reflection that my organs were suspended. It was as if the light was acting as a zero-g generator. Even my globs of blood would drift down and hang in the air. There was a video of some astronaut showing how water acted outside of Earth's gravity. 
and it looked similar to how my blood was acting, though obviously my blood was more viscous and held together better in the environment. At some point, the pain just became a part of me. The fear that was clawing at my inside was soothed somehow, like something was telling me I wasn't going to die, and that the pain was temporary. Fascination took over as I watched my insides shift and indolate, still performing the necessary tasks like nothing abstract was happening. Everything, except my stomach. Almost as if reacting to the light, I watched a small yellow flash emit from my stomach. I could feel the heat of it every time it flashed. The two things walked over to it, the yellow light rhythmically casting over their skin. It looked like human skin, but it was a light shade of gray, and seemed to wrap around them tightly. One held my stomach, and the other used something to cut into it. My fascination flushed away, and in its place a much more intense agony radiated through me. I got nauseous, and as I felt the pain in my stomach so distant from my body... It was like a snake devouring its food, how the pain would run through my body one bit at a time. My lungs, stomach, intestines, all separate sections of myself experienced pain on their own. The driver reached into the opening he had created and retrieved the flashing light. Holding it in his hand, I could see the metal device flashing against his gray, cracked skin. The other driver placed his hands over the device, and I watched as a faint light admitted between the two. Once it was gone from the device, now it was flashing a bright blue, and was returned to my stomach. When this light was returned, however, I didn't feel any heat or pain. The driver placed his hand over the opening in my stomach, and emitted the light once more. Then both of them returned their gaze to me, their eyes closed, making their faces almost featureless, just walls of gray flesh. Then I could feel the restraints beginning to loosen, and as the purple light returned to white, the restraints were completely released and I fell. I braced for impact, but found that I fell slowly. I watched as I was engulfed by the white light, able to turn my head and look towards the source of it. While it was blinding, I was able to see out of the truck into the space beyond. The light shining into my box was from another truck's headlights, and not the only one. Next to and behind that truck was another truck. Next to those trucks was another truck. And so on and so on. I couldn't see past the first few, but I could feel it. An ocean of similar trucks driven by similar men, masked by the twilight, all humming the same tune, releasing the same light. I didn't know if any of those trucks had someone in them, or if they were all empty, but I could feel that all served the same purpose. As that ocean revealed itself to me, and I was able to see into the infinity, my face crashed into the ground. I let out a gasp of air that kicked up the dirt in front of me. My chest and arms ached from the sudden impact. Finally in control of my body once more, I scrambled around to try and get on my feet. It felt like when I was taking my first steps. Unfamiliar with how to operate my body, I flailed around on the road for several minutes before I began getting the hang of it. It was like the neural pathways that had formed over my years of life were blocked off to stop me from moving. Realizing I was still bathed in light, I panicked looking towards the source to find the headlights of my car sitting lonely on the road. Confused, I lifted my shirt to look over my skin. Running my hand over the flesh, I couldn't find any imperfections that weren't already there. But when I ran my fingers over where I knew the skin was split, 
The memory of fire-like pain crept into my mind. Removing my hand halted the memory. Not sure of what else I should do, I shuffled over to my car and sat myself down in the driver's seat. Once again, I pictured the light of my car against the dark expanse, nothing but a dot in the sky. With the turn of the key, the car sprang to life, and with a press on the gas, it began to roll forward, completely vacant of the dashboard's warnings that previously had plagued it. I drove all through the night until reaching my destination. Nothing stood out on my drive except for when I drove by a truck stop. A completely unremarkable truck sat among the other branded ones. I knew in my head that couldn't have been the driver that had picked me up, but I couldn't stop my hair from standing on end. Because now I know that aliens don't fly spaceships, they drive semi-trucks. Hello everyone, this is Brandon, the host of the Parunity Podcast, wanting to take a second to tell you about our show. The Parunity Podcast is your top choice for closing the distance between the paranormal groups. From ghosts, to cryptids, to ufology, we will discuss it all. The Parunity Podcast is aimed at promoting positivity and collaboration between investigators, and is geared specifically for those in the field. But if you're not, you'll still get a kick out of the show as well, because you'll be able to think of it like ghost hunters talking shop. Tune in and join myself and all of our amazing guests as we entertain you with sensational stories of fantastic places, events, tips for your investigations, and so much more. And remember, you can find the Parunity Podcast on your favorite podcast directory and part of the Paranormality Radio Network. Hey everyone. I'm Jack Kirby. I'm the host of Paranormal Podcasts We Listen To, which is a roundtable podcast where I talk to your favorite hosts in the paranormal world. I also host The Matrix Has You, a podcast where I share your experiences with glitches in the Matrix, parallel realities, and the Mandela Effect. You can find Paranormal Podcasts We Listen To and The Matrix Has You on the Paranormality Podcast Network, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. On this episode, I'm going to be sharing a story from The Matrix. This happened to me about 20 years ago, and I still can't explain it. I picked up my friend to go out one Saturday evening. We were both 20-ish females. I was driving, and we were blasting tunes, and I was laughing, ready for a fun night out. To get to our destination... We need to hop onto the freeway for like a quarter mile and then off at the next exit. I turned onto the freeway on-ramp, not realizing it was under construction. Like a dummy, not paying attention to the ramp close sign. Suddenly my friend screamed, look out! The road was just gone. We both screamed. In front of us was this great big construction hole. The next thing that either of us remember is that we're at our destination. There's no way we could not have crashed into that hole. We didn't even talk about it until days later. It was like we both just forgot about it. I drove past the exact spot soon after. It was a giant hole. How are we alive? 
How are we here? Alive. Not injured. Car not scratched? And what happened to those five or ten minutes between realizing we were going to crash and being at our destination? Here's a couple updates just for clarification. Neither of us remember waking up or anything like that. We both have no memory between driving straight into the hole and being at our destination. We didn't even realize time was missing until we spoke about it later. And when I say I drove past the ramp close sign, in reality, I never saw any sign, as far as I know. The sign wasn't there. When I drove back by the spot a few days later, it was clearly marked. In fact, it was barricaded. There was no way we should have even gotten as far as we did to see the hole. It was like the road was there, as it normally is, and a big construction hole suddenly appeared. And that's my Glitch in the Matrix story. I hope you enjoyed this Glitch in the Matrix story, and Happy Halloween, everyone. Thank you for listening, friends. We hope you enjoyed part one of our special Halloween treat. If you like these stories, be sure to check out ParanormalityRadio.com for the featured podcasts and more like them. We'll be back next week with more spooky tales. Until then, good night and remember, eyes to the skies. This podcast is a proud member of the Paranormality Podcast Network. 